Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie and Zach. Uh, what a wonderful reminder that it's in the Lord that we live, move, and breathe and have our being. So just know that uh, as we sing, as we're gathered today, uh, that we're here because of Jesus, for Jesus, and that through Jesus, um, uh, we can become more like him, the one who saved us. And uh, as we are continuing on in this theme of Holy Week, um, love this week and just the progression of all that takes place during this week. And it's not because of anything that, that we're doing uh, or anything that we're producing, uh, but it's about a fresh remembrance and a united and focused remembrance of what Jesus has already done. And so we're excited and honored to have back with us today Pastor Dave Johnson. And uh, if you weren't here yesterday, as he spoke yesterday, um, just a little bit about him. He uh, was a pastor, a lead pastor of Church of the Open Door in Maple Grove uh, for the past 38 years. And uh, just stepped away from that this past November. And uh, both he and his wife, Bonnie, continue to stay involved and connected to the community there. Uh, kind of a fun little tidbit fact, uh, Open Door is the church that I went to when I was a student. And so um, all that to say, uh, chapel isn't church, but there's a lot of overlap and connection to what the Lord is doing in the local church. And so uh, if you're not connected to a local church, uh, uh, be intentional about seeking that out as it was hugely formational in my life and sitting under Pastor Dave's teaching and being a part and serving in that community while I was a college student. So um, also just a little word of warning. Uh, Dave can... Uh, uh, preach and speak uh, more words in a minute than probably 10 of you combined. So um, just want to gear up and uh, give your full attention as he's kind of a fire hydrant of grace and truth through the word this morning. So uh, please give a warm Northwestern a welcome as we welcome back Pastor Dave Johnson. And uh, let's pray over him yep. as we pray uh, for ourselves as well. So Lord, thank you that it is you, it is in you that we live, move, and breathe and have our being. And Jesus, thank you that you see and notice and care and love for each one of us. And I pray that right now by the power of your spirit that you'd help us to be aware of your love for us and that we would respond to your love by giving you our full attention. And give us a fresh awareness, a profound awareness of your presence. Help us to hear your voice louder than anything else. In these next moments, thank you for bringing your servant, our brother, Pastor Dave here, we pray that, again, you would fill him afresh with your spirit, that there would be an anointing upon these words, that as he speaks, um, Lord, that he would know that he's, he's up here, he's with, he's here with you, that he would be encountering you as he's speaking, that we're encountering you as we're listening, and that all together, Lord, by the work of your spirit, that we would become more like you. For your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Justin. Hmm. Well, it's good to be back today, having been here yesterday as well. Yesterday, if you were here, you may remember that I called it a no-turning-back event when Jesus entered into the city on the colt of a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna that he'd been catapulting him into, irreversibly into, the final week of his life, what we're referring to this week as Holy Week, and we're kind of all experiencing that together. But there was another such event, a no-turning-back event, events um, that, I, that I think might help us understand and enter into this catal the catalytic events of Holy Week, again, that we are in right now. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16. Also in Matthew chapter, Mark rather, chapter 8, where Jesus begins to turn himself toward his mission and toward the cross, because in Matthew 16, 21, it says this, that from that time on, so this is a turning 
point for him, he began to tell his disciples something that they weren't ready to hear, and it was this, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed, to which Peter says, I think you remember this in verse 22, God forbid it, Lord, he's saying this out of love for Jesus, but he doesn't understand the plan. This thing shall never happen to you, Peter says, to which Jesus says in verse 23, in effect, he says, shut up, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. That's a paraphrase of the literal Greek. Um, (laughs) Get thee behind me, remember that? Get behind me, uh, Peter, and the get behind me is kind of speaking to the fact that, Peter, uh, you're really well-intended, but you're kind of in the way of what God is doing here through me in this. Because if anyone actually, and he's speaking this to Peter, but he's also speaking it to us, if anyone actually intends to come after me, verse 24 of the same uh, chapter, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, not just cheer for me, um, but follow me. They must deny themselves and take up their cross, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life or her life for my sake will surely find it. And what shall it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world but lose their whole soul? And and I don't know about you, but all of this talk about losing your soul and dying to yourself, um, denying yourself, taking up a cross, isn't isn't, um, very appealing, actually, um, to me. Uh, as As a speaker... Uh, preacher, it's kind of a tough sell. Come die, you know, with Jesus kind of thing. And it's at least part of why I actually like Advent way more than Lent. So ask me back to talk about Advent. Um, now, as I say that, I want you to understand that I, I did not grow up in a faith tradition that had any understanding of either Advent or Lent. Um, but now I do. I think I get both of those seasons more than I used to. And what's clear to me is this that Advent is just way more fun. <laughs> than Lent, Um, because Advent is all about Christmas, as you know. Uh, No talk of suffering around Christmas, no talk of death, no need to deny yourself and take up a cross. Nobody's losing their life in order to find it, because during Advent, uh, the, the, the talk is all about good news of great joy. Indeed, the shepherds, to the shepherds and to Mary, the angel declares that this will be just that good news of great joy for unto us a child is born a son is given and that will be great Christmas is great even his name will be great this whole thing is just gonna be great because Christmas is coming and Christ is coming but during Lent ah, it's a little sobering a cross is coming that's what we're kind of waiting for Um, indeed I must go to Jerusalem he says I suffer many things which doesn't sound that great, to tell you the truth. And Peter agrees in verse 22. I just read that. God forbid it, Lord, because it's plan of yours to go to the cross, to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. It's just not, I don't know, that great, at least not to me, to which Jesus says to Peter, and again to us, verse 24, that not only will this happen, Peter, I will go um, there. It, it must happen because I must go to Jerusalem suffer many things, and even be killed, and then after three days I will be raised. And then in John chapter 12, uh, Jesus explains to his disciples why, why it has to be this way. Here's why, John 12, because unless the grain of wheat, very weird verse, because unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground 
and dies, it remains by itself alone. It remains by itself useless without effect. But if it dies, a miraculous thing takes place. This seed, if it dies, it bears much fruit. It produces many seeds. Ironically, if it dies, it'll come to life. And at one level, he's obviously using this strange language about seeds dying and coming to life to talk about himself, about his own death and resurrection, explain to the disciples why it is he has to die, because in order to rise from the dead, we kind of figured this out, you have to die first, um, which makes the dying necessary. I must go to Jerusalem, because you can't rise from the dead unless you're dead, not just partly dead, you've got to be dead. But he's talking about more than that here as well, more than his physical death and resurrection, and more than his death and resurrection, which we get a hint of in verse 26 of John chapter 12, where he cryptically says this thing, that the one who serves me, and this is after he talks about the seed falling to the ground and dying and coming alive, then he says, the one who serves me must follow me. Into, into this same kind of pattern, as if to say, you guys, as you're hearing me talk about my need to go to Jerusalem and die, I want you to know that this dying to live thing does apply to me, but it doesn't just apply to me. It applies to you as well, Peter, and us as well here. Indeed, there's something about this going to Jerusalem thing, this way of the cross thing that you don't want me to go to. This is as if Jesus is speaking. You said, God forbid it, Lord, that I'm calling you to go to, actually, for if anyone wishes actually to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me there into the same kind of place that I'm going in Jerusalem, into that kind of journey, into that kind of life, a life that's marked by dying in order to live a life of losing your life in order to find it for whoever wishes to save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will find it which oh man unless we're in church or sunday school those kinds of things just sound so <laughs> weird um odd uh and not that great to tell you the truth i want to go back to christmas anyway so here's the question i want you to sit with here and we'll unpack it a bit why is it true what Jesus says is true in John chapter 12, and how does it work? Well, here's how and here's why. And, and I don't want to say this, you catch this in, in, in a way that is kind of communicated by Jesus to us as this is just the way it is. Here's the why. Um, this is a matter-of-fact thing. This is just the way life works, and here's how life works. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, this is just the way it is. It remains by itself alone. It is useless. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It produces many seeds. It comes to life. It's just the way life works generally, but specifically in the kingdom of God, which means, among other things, this, that this invitation of Lent that we're kind of sitting in, particularly on this last week as we're anticipating Easter and Good Friday and the message of the cross, the message in the invitation is not just that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead so that we wouldn't have to die on a cross and rise from the dead, um, though all of that is true. But the underlying message and the fundamental message is that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead to demonstrate once and for all that this is how you actually come to life every day. Not by grasping life, but by releasing it. Not by gaining your life, but by losing your life will you find it. Not by ascending, but by descending. 
will you find greatness, which again might sound like gibberish and kind of cycly thinking that's just kind of weird, but the Apostle Paul says of Jesus this very familiar text in Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, he says this, that although he existed in the form of God, Jesus required... uh, um, Jesus regarded equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Stop right there. He emptied himself, which speaks to a journey of descent. He emptied himself, which is not grasping, he's releasing. That's the metaphoric language here. And he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave, becoming obedient unto death, even death, and the cross. And because he did, because he did submit to that and take that journey of descent, releasing some things and entering into humility and even his death because he did that he was raised from the dead god raised him up and god highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name that the name of jesus every knee would bow and tongue confess but the point of that text of jesus emptying himself is not just to stir admiration in us for him though it does that the point is that we would actually um join him Because that text began in verse 5, where Paul in Philippians 2 says this, you guys have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ, who himself did become obedient unto death, even death on the cross, but then he came to life, this is the pattern again, and God highly exalted him and gave to him the name, which means among other things this, that the invitation of Lent, particularly during this week of Holy Week, this final week, is to, in the words of Brennan Manning, Go beyond just cheering for me. I've done that my whole life. I picture myself as a kid growing up in church and Easter Sunday, the big thing is I'm just cheering for what he did and I'm gonna do that this Sunday too and I want you to do that too, but don't just do that. Don't just cheer for me, sing stirring songs about me because I died and rose again. What I really want you to do is join me. Join me uh, is to follow me into this universal pattern that is woven into the fabric of life and the kingdom of God, and the pattern is this, whether we understand it or not, whether we uh, like it or not, the pattern is this, that life springs out of death, and that coming to life in the kingdom of God is almost always involving a kind of dying first, some kind of letting go. I bet you can even charge your own life in places where there's, you've come to the end of yourself in some way. You let something go. You admitted something was wrong. You came to life, thought you were going to die. It always involves a kind of letting go. Sometimes of life itself, sometimes of control and what people think or the need to be right or to win or to look good. And every time you let it go, I mean, if, if you are into controlling everything in your life, <laughs> and then you are in a place where you realize, i got to let go of this, you feel like you're going to die. If it's all about needing to look good, and all of a sudden, you realize the depravity, the, the, the emptiness of that kind of striving, and you start to let it go, you th- I promise you, you think you're going to die. Um, because I have to win, I have to control, I have to look good, and when you let that go, you think you're going to die, but you won't die. You will come to life. That's the pattern. That's the way it is. Something comes to life, and the truth is you know this is true. Even if you've never said it quite this way, I know you've even experienced this thing yourself. Have you ever said you were sorry? I hope you have. (laughs) Um, 
But when, when you come to those places where you realize we're wrong and you have to go, I, 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 I'm sorry, you think you're going to die. But you don't die. Something comes to life. Um, ever seen you were wrong that the direction you were going for so long and you were so sure you were right about the attitude you were holding, the grudge you were holding when you see that it was wrong and you see to your horror that the man behind the curtain, remember Wizard of Oz, man behind the curtain, and when you see to your horror that the man behind the curtain trying to manage everybody's impression is you, and the curtain gets exposed and there you are, you think you're going to die. But in the dying, in the letting go of all that need to control and make it look good and all that stuff, in the dying, something comes to life. If you've ever forgiven someone, um, to release someone, to forfeit the right, to punish someone, to let go of that offense or that anger and the protection that your anger gives to you because if I stay angry, they won't hurt me again. You let go of that, feels like you're going to die. I'm going to be unprotected. I think I'm going to die. But in the dying, something comes to life and something is set free. Have you ever had to take a stand for something? Or maybe against something because it was right or it was wrong. But if you do it, if you take the stand for this thing or against this thing, you could lose a friend or a church or, or, or something. Um, and if you ever come to a place like that, it feels like you're going to die. If I lose that friend, if I lose this job, if I lose that person's impression of me, you think you're going to die. But in the dying, there's this weird thing that happens. Something comes to life, like courage comes to life. Interesting, Ernest Becker, in his book entitled The Denial of Death, says that if anyone tells you you can be born again, enlightened, and saved, going to heaven when you die, but does not speak to you very honestly about dying, do not believe that person. There is no renewal in all of nature without preceding loss. Even the food we eat, I like this, even the food we eat, has to die before it can give life. It's universal. This is, this is not just a Bible story. This is universal. Ironic then, isn't it, says Richard Rohr in his book, Adam's Return, that a message that is so universally true is so universally disbelieved, even by those of us who say we believe it. He calls it amazing, this, that the cross or the crucifix has ever, be, ever became the central Christian symbol when it's rather obvious message is so aggressively disbelieved in many Christian countries, institutions, and churches because most Christian countries, institutions, and churches are clearly, clearly, and <laughs> are clearly into ascent, into achievement and accumulation. And if you don't believe that, just go to a Christian bookstore sometime and notice the bestsellers and everything in the Christian bookstore is bad, but you notice the bestsellers, often they are all about how to ascend and achieve and succeed. So, back to Rohr's quote, the cross has become for many people a mere totem, a piece of jewelry. We made the Jesus symbol into a mechanical and distant substitutionary atonement theory alone. It is that, but we've made it that alone sometimes. So instead of it being a very personal and intense at one process, it became only something that Jesus did for us instead of something that revealed and then invited us into that same process, that same pattern. And the pattern um, 
is this. Um, the only way to gain your life is to give it away. And, and if anyone wishes to come after me, they have to, first of all, quit cheering for me um, and actually begin to follow me into this way of living. Which brings me back to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself or herself, take up the cross. He must, she must deny himself, herself, which, much like taking up your cross, doesn't, to me, sound um, that great. Indeed, it sounds like an invitation into a miserable life. I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor, and so I hear these, heard these verses my whole life, and it really, I'd be nodding my head going, that's really good now. Talk, Dad. Um, but what it felt like was an invitation. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. An invitation into a miserable life, at least a horribly restrictive one, full of no. <laughs> Just say no, mostly to yourself. Want to have fun? No. <laughs> no. Would you like something nice? No. Um, you want to live a life of passion? No. You want to enjoy yourself at all? No. You want to ever go to a church again that gives you this message? For sure, no. <laughs> so, so let me unpack this a little bit because this is really important. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean, um, what you're not doing when you're denying yourself because you're not saying no to all pleasurable experiences as if anything pleasurable must be sinful and therefore avoided. That's not true. That's not what you're saying no to. Um, and it doesn't mean that you should do things for God that you really hate doing. <laughs> because you think that's what it means to deny yourself. If I enjoy it, it must not be good. So if you really love baseball or music or art, you better not do that because you should deny yourself any kind of joy in the, <laughs> the gifts God's given you. And it doesn't mean you should somehow become less human to deny your feelings, to become unemotional, unfeeling, unexcited, avoid all ups and downs, eat only bland food, wear only beige, but then we'd all be Lutherans and yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> or Baptists or us. Um, but the truth is this, and, and I think this is great. To really understand Jesus' call here to self-denial, we need to understand it in the context of a paradigm that actually finds its roots not in denial. Deny yourself. It is said there, but the root of that is not in denial, but in desire. And to illustrate that paradigm wonderfully, I want you to go to Matthew 13, 44. You don't have to turn to it. If you want to, you can, but I know you know this story. What's going on here is Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and the effect that it can have on the human heart. And as he often does, he does his teaching with a story designed to ignite the imagination of the listeners. And so he says in verse 44 of Matthew 13, to what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? I know, he says, it's like a treasure hidden in a field that this guy finds. And for joy over this treasure that he found hidden in a field, he goes and sells everything he has. But then he thinks of another one right away on the heels of that first one. Because the kingdom of heaven is also like a merchant seeking, seeking uh, fine pearls. And when he finds this one pearl of uh, transcendent value, he goes and sells everything 
he has to buy that one pearl. And, and the first thing I want you to notice <laughs> about that whole thing is that when Jesus tells a story, I love this, about the kingdom of God, he doesn't kick into theological propositions about eschatological abstractions. He tells a story about buried treasure. I love, I love that. And it's a story that has at its root not a demand to deny yourself. At its root is a, is a story about desire. So to what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? Um, well, what kind of thing would you come up with? But you're going to have to think, and, and, and you're going to have to think of something that stimulates desire. And, and I've got a story like that in my mind. It's one of my favorite stories, actually, because when I was in college, I loved a girl. Um, her name was Bonnie. Ended up marrying her. 45 years we've been married now, but we were a high school sweetheart thing. I went off to college. Um, so I'm, okay. Bonnie, you like that name, Bonnie? No, I know I got Thank you. Um, but I was up here going to school. I, was, I went to Bethel years and years ago, years ago. So she's back in Chicago. I'm up here 400 miles away in Minnesota. I had no money, no car. I had no sense, trust me, on that. But I wanted to see her because ha, 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 she was like a treasure, a pearl of great price to me. So I decided to get home. No car, no money, no sense. Okay, I'll hitchhike home 400 miles. I set out at 6 o'clock at night. How stupid is that? At night, 6 o'clock, a friend brought me out, Josiah of Hudson, Wisconsin, dropped me off there, waved goodbye and said, you're an idiot. Um, from there, I got a ride to Eau Claire. From Eau Claire, I got a ride to Milwaukee with a chain smoker who wouldn't roll down his windows. From there, I got a ride to Chicago. Now I'm in Chicago. I know my way around. I know the bus system, so I got a bus. and took it home. See, I would have done anything to see her that weekend. So here's the question. To what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? Ha ha, that's got to stimulate desire. It is like a stupid kid so crazy in love that he would risk his very life. <laughs> truth is, truth is, I was in Minnesota. Bonnie was in Chicago. I heard this guy was moving in on her. I needed to protect my investment and get home quick. It didn't work. We had a huge fight actually broke up for a while. But that's a great story even if it doesn't fit the talk. Yeah, it fits the talk. It does fit the talk. Here's the deal. Selling everything you have, risking my life like an idiot, <laughs> to go to Chicago is the self-denial part. I would do anything. Um, but it's not rooted in denial. It's rooted in desire for a treasure, for something bigger, better than, than this little pittance thing I'm hanging on to as if it had some life to give. So what do you want? What, what do you want? hundred years ago, it said that, that, that you Christians like us didn't talk so much about being saved as much as they talked about having been seized by the power of a great affection. Um, it's important to be saved, and I know all about that, but there's a different energy around saying, I, I was seized by the, it's not about avoiding hell, it's about I have discovered a treasure. I have discovered the pearl of great price, because that is the treasure hidden in the field. That is the pearl of great price, for which Paul says, I would suffer the loss of all things. I would sell everything I have for, for this treasure of knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Dallas Willard on self-denial says this, that the self 
denial that Jesus speaks of is always the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, and futile thing for an infinitely greater, eternal thing. But sometimes in the exchange, because of our attachments to lesser things, when you begin to release these lesser things that we've begun to use to feed ourselves or protect ourselves, in the beginning to let them go, it feels like you're going to die. It feels like you're going to, I can't live without that impression management that I'm so committed to. But you don't die if you begin to let it go. Something in you will come to life, which brings me to the question with which I close. What might there be in you, in, in me, in, in us, as we consider the events of this week and move our, our minds and hearts toward Good Friday? What kind of things in us might need to die so that you and me and we could come to life more and more and more life? Because I'm telling you the truth. This is just the way it is. Unless a grain of seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. It has no effect. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, produces many seeds. It comes to life. Let me read this benediction over you. Um, just close your eyes, would you? And, um, if you're comfortable, just hold out your hands a bit as if you're receiving a gift. Lord, hold us on this Lenten journey. Hold our feet to the fire of your grace. Make us aware of our frailty that we may begin to die now to those things that keep us from being fully alive to those things that keep us from living with you and with each other, to grudges and indifference, to certainties that smother possibilities, to our fascination with false securities, to our arrogant insistence on how it has to be. Lord, hold us in this Lenten season, in this holy week. Hold our heart to the beat of your grace and create in us a resting place, a kneeling place. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Easter.